Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Hey, what does, uh, what does this remind you of? What is it? Salvation Army. Very much a part of the American Christmas experience uh, now. And uh, actually, Salvation Army are the fourth most popular charitable organization in the United States. And uh, of course, they, they raise a lot of their funds at this time of year, at Christmas time. And uh, I think it's like $150 million in the United States uh, that benefits 30 million people. And, uh, and of course, Christmas is that season of giving, isn't it? The season of goodwill. And that's because we remember uh, that God gave us the greatest gift of all, uh, that he gave us the gift of his son, Jesus. And that's why we take up an offering, uh, special offerings at Christmas to benefit uh, the needy. Uh, I think that's uh, entirely appropriate uh, because when you look at the nativity story that's recorded there in the Gospels, uh, we see that the people that Jesus was revealed to were not the important people. It wasn't the well-to-do people. It wasn't the kind of respectable religious people. Uh, it was to a poor teenage uh, girl. Uh, it was to a, a barren elderly couple, uh, some smelly low-caste shepherds, and a group of foreign astrologers. Uh, and really, that's what the Christmas story is all about. It's about God coming to those who were poor, to the outsiders, to the marginalized, and to the vulnerable. In fact, when Mary found out that she was pregnant, she, she sang this amazing song of praise where she says this. She says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. You know, God cares about the people that the world so often neglects. And it means that you can't follow Jesus and not care about the people that he cares about. Um, and that's not just for Christmas, is it? If you are growing in your relationship with Jesus, then you should be growing in your concern for those whom the world uh, casts aside. And if the gospel that we are proclaiming isn't reaching out to the poor and the disadvantaged, you really have to question whether it's really the gospel at all. So, this morning I want to tell you a story, all right? And it's going to be a little different to what we usually do, uh, because rather than looking at a story from the Bible, I want us to look at a story from history. And uh, I'm going to resist drawing any conclusions or giving any lessons this morning. Uh, I just want you to listen and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your hearts, okay? But let me just ask, let's just pray right now. Lord, I just ask you this morning that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to our church. Thank you for those words that came during the time of worship there. Lord, thank you how already you're, Lord, speaking, Lord, into our situation, into our church and our lives. And we just pray that you'll continue to speak to us through, 
Lord, this uh, message I'm going to share this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear, I pray, for your glory. Amen. The story uh, is about a, a boy called William. Will grew up in Robin Hood country in Nottingham in England in the mid-19th century. Uh, his father uh, used to make nails, but in the age of mass production, he became redundant and died at a relatively early age and left his family bankrupt. It meant that Will had to leave school at the age of 13 uh, to go and work in order to support his family, his mom and his sisters. Uh, and he got a job as an apprentice in a pawnbroker's shop. It was there that Will became acutely aware of the poverty uh, that, in which so many people lived, with you know, mothers pawning the very little they had to feed their hungry families, while husbands spent their meager earnings on gin. He saw the underbelly of society, you know, the broken lives, the, the degradation, the, the darkness and hopelessness. Um, and it was there that, that Will first felt God's heart for the poor. He had not had a Christian upbringing, but at the age of 15, he started attending a Wesleyan Methodist uh, chapel. And his conversion came at 11 o'clock uh, one night as he trudged home from the meeting. And he says that he suddenly saw with great clarity that he was not right with God and that he needed to renounce everything he knew to be wrong and put to right the, things that, the wrong things he'd done to others. And he simply knelt right there and then in the streets and surrendered his life to Christ. Now, attending a Wesleyan chapel meant he got to hear a lot about its founder, John Wesley. And he admired how Wesley had brought the gospel to multitudes of the working class in the previous century. That's what really gave birth to the Methodist church with many thousands of lives that were being transformed. But Will noticed that in his own day, the poorest people were not to be found in church. And he resolved to do something about that and to follow in Wesley's footsteps and to go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. And so he went to a very poor district, uh, a slum district in Nottingham called The Bottoms which should tell us something. It's where all the outcasts of society lived. And he would use a crate to stand on, and he would preach out there in the open air to anyone who would listen. Well, it was one Sunday morning in 1846, and it was a morning that was not going to be forgotten in a hurry. It was during the fourth hymn in the Wesleyan Chapel when suddenly, in through the front door, burst Will followed by this smelly, shabby contingent of dirty, rough-looking uh, converts from the slum. And they all shuffled past the upright shopkeepers and their well-dressed wives, and they came and sat in the pews right at the front of the chapel. Well, this was unheard of. This was outrageous that he should do that, because, you know, there was a special section reserved for the poor behind a partition, out of sight of the rest of the congregation. What was he thinking? Well, clearly, uh, Will uh, was not aware of the mounting tension that was in the room. He just happily sang the hymn with his motley crew around him. But later on, he was brought before the church authorities and told in no uncertain terms that was never to happen again. That was where Will 
had to face the unpalatable truth that since Wesley's day, the church had become respectable. He said that he had come to see the gospel was hidden away in these respectable churches and kept as a treasure by those already rich with blessing. And yet he says, what about those outside? What about the poor of society who are living in darkness and are perishing like flies, he said? How would they hear the gospel? Who would tell them that the way to everlasting life lay right before them? Clearly, the church needed a change. Maybe he would do something about that. Well, over the years, his passion led him to become a full-time preacher and evangelist within the new Methodist Reformed denomination that had just split from the Wesleyans. And he became a circuit preacher in different parts of the country, including London. That's where he fell in love with a girl who shared his passion and who was to become his lifelong co-worker. Her name was Catherine Mumford. And they were married in 1855, and they soon had a growing family. Here we have uh, a photo of some of the family. Uh, William Booth there, looking a passionate young man that he was. <laughs> Wherever William preached, he actually drew large crowds and saw many conversions, but it didn't satisfy him. In fact, he grew quite, quite depressed. And, you know, there have been a number of biographies written about him, uh, but I've got these two early uh, first edition volumes of his life, uh, written in 1920 by a man called Harold Begbie. Begbie knew the Booth family personally, and uh, he was a well-respected journalist and author, had, had authored, I think, 50 books in all, including uh, a biography about Ernest Shackleton. And uh, so this is what Begbie says about Booth, it says, he made converts of the most degraded people, but many of them relapsed or became formal, just became churchgoers, or did nothing to hasten the kingdom of God. And these chapel or church people remained, as far as he could judge, very much what they were before conversion. At any rate, they did not become missionaries, they did not make the great sacrifice, they did not touch the lives of other people with the attraction of Christ. And so respectability, we must understand, did not satisfy William Booth. In fact, William Booth, and instead of standing at the church door saying to people, why don't you come in? Christians should go out and meet the world on its own terms. And Begbie says he came to realize, he says, that the one way in which he could lastingly change men and women was to make them from the moment of their conversion seekers and savers of the lost. And so... William left the Methodist church, he moved back to London with his family, and he was there in the notorious East End. I mean, when I, when I say East End, think of uh, Whitechapel, if you've ever seen the TV drama Whitechapel, or if you've ever heard of Jack the Ripper, right, that, that was in the East End of London in, in the Victorian times. And it was there that he says he felt a fresh movement of God in his life. He says, I saw multitudes of my fellow creatures, not only without God and hope, but sunk in the most desperate forms of wickedness and misery. And as you see here, alcoholism was one of the main problems because gin was so cheap. It was actually safer to drink than water. You could find children as young as five stepping up uh, to the counter there in some of the gin palaces which were everywhere. Parents were rarely sober, lived for the next drink. 
60,000 people died every year. Uh, thousands were homeless living under the arches of Blackfriars Bridge. And so as William walked through those stinking alleys among the bare-knuckle fighters, the Irish flower girls wearing only soiled petticoats, and the filthy children, you know, searching in the trash like dogs for something to eat, it was there that Booth knew God was calling him to devote himself to rescuing these people. But he and his family were penniless. Uh, he had no means of income. And yet he knew if God was calling him to this work, that God would provide, which of course God did in providing some generous benefactors. And so William and Catherine, they started a tent meeting in an old tent on some waste ground on the Mile End Road where he would go into the pubs and he would invite everyone to come and hear his message. He'd say, come drunk or sober, just come as you are. And it became known as the East London Christian Mission. It was a hard and difficult work. Again, listen to Harold Begbie. He says, it was like preaching in hell. For the atheism of East London in those days was a fierce and a pugnant atheism. An atheism which hated the very name of God and to which Jesus appeared as the arch-deceiver of the human race. Uh, Catherine wrote that he would stumble at home at night uh, just haggard with uh, fatigue, uh, night after night, sometimes with his clothes torn, uh, with a bloody bandage around his head where he'd been struck by a stone as he sought to preach the gospel to a hostile crowd. But you know, wherever the gospel is preached, you can be sure that God is at work. William's first convert in the East End was called the Irishman. He was a bare-knuckle prize fighter. He was on his way to a fight behind the infamous Blind Beggar pub. It was going to be a big fight. It was a, it was a grudge match. But on the way, he bumped into William coming in the other direction. And it stopped him dead in his He says he knew that William must be a, a minister uh, because he was wearing a white collar. Uh, but he says there was something about him that just laid hold of him. And William told him he was going to be preaching later on the Mile End Road, and he invited the Irishman to come. Bring some of your boys with you, he says. And so the Irishman promised that he would. When he was interviewed at the end of his life, the Irishman said he, would, he actually thought it was going to be his last fight because he thought he was going to die. He didn't think he was going to survive that fight. In fact, he said this about his opponent. He said he was a terrible man, taller than me and fierce with it and proud too. But this is what he says about the fight that took place. He says he gave up like an old woman after an hour and three quarters. An hour and three quarters. <laughs> he said, although I'd beaten him, I didn't want to fight again. And as soon as I could, I went off to the Mile End Waste where Mr. Booth was preaching. And it was at one of those early tent meetings that he came forward, got on his knees. William prayed for him, and the Irishman said, I was converted. He says, I got up from my knees ready to die for that man. In fact, it was a great help. He brought some order to the rabble who would come to the meetings because they all feared the Irishman. <laughs> it wasn't long before they made him the manager of the first soup kitchen. That first year, William Booth 
gained 50 or 60 of these raw converts. And every convert was recruited into his volunteer army. Beggars, prostitutes, violent men and women, but they knew what they had been rescued from. And having encountered God and experienced his transforming love, they were compelled then to reach others who were still living in the darkness. And it was with this motley crew that William started his first mission station, which was later to become known as what? Salvation Army. It was in those early tent meetings, I think we've got a picture of one here, and the mission stations that were later to spring up all over the country, that thousands of men and women found freedom through the gospel of Christ. But you know, it's because the Spirit of God was moving so powerfully. There were many eyewitness accounts of some incredible things that God was doing in those days as he poured out his Spirit on them. Um, people were coming to the meetings drunk and cursing. You know, people had been chronic alcoholics since an early age, and they would encounter the presence of God in that gathering, and they would leave the meeting stone-cold sober in their right minds, miraculously, radically delivered from their addiction. Incredible. They were hardened, sometimes downright evil men and women who would come to ridicule and disrupt the meetings, but would suddenly come under deep conviction and could be found crying out to God for mercy. It wasn't uncommon for people to fall to the ground as they encountered God's presence and remain in something of a trance or in an agony of soul for hours and then get up totally transformed. Uh, there are just some mind-blowing first-hand testimonies uh, from William Booth's son, Branwell Booth, who worked with his father and continued the work afterwards. And some of them are recorded in Begbie's book. And just in case we might wonder whether Branwell Booth was given to exaggeration, uh, listen to what he says here. Branwell Booth says, From my earliest years of responsible work for God, I have approached all such manifestations, if not with a hostile mind, certainly with a mind deliberately cautious. I've always felt that anything claiming to be of the supernatural must have credentials which placed its genuineness beyond cattle. And so now listen to what he says to Harold Begbie in an interview. Harold Begbie says this, He is nevertheless convinced, entirely convinced, that something of the same force which manifested itself on the day of Pentecost manifested itself at those meetings in London. He describes how men and women would suddenly fall flat upon the ground and remain in a swoon or trance for many hours, rising at last so transformed by joy that they could do nothing but shout and sing in an ecstasy of bliss. The floor would sometimes be crowded with men and women smitten down by a sense of overwhelming spiritual reality, and the workers of the mission would lift their fallen bodies and carry them to other rooms so that the meetings might continue without distraction. Again, listen to Branwell Booth. He says, I've seen men in our meetings who were raving and blaspheming when the service began, suddenly broken down as though some physical power had laid them prostrate on the floor. And after a time of silence, weeping, and penitence, they were confessing their sins and imploring the mercy of God. And in many such cases, the whole of their subsequent lives was changed 
and no question could arise in the minds of any of those who knew them as to the reality of the experience. They started recording some of these stories in an early uh, newspaper they printed called The Salvationist. I read one account of a, a woman who says that, uh, when she, it says here, the writer says, when she got saved, she shouted and jumped like a mad woman. And when she came out, her husband scolded her for shouting so and making so much noise. But since then, he has got saved too, and he was as bad as his wife. <laughs> as soon as he got saved, he jumped up and shouted, this is glory, this is glory, this is glory. And we all shouted together. This man went shouting all the way home, this is glory, this is glory. And we could hear him 500 yards off. One man said to me, you've sent him right off his head. But I said, he's all right. <laughs> he's all right. Just met with God. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible. I mean, people just falling under the power of God. And, and not only that, but hardened, ungodly men and women who were weeping, stricken by a sense of their sin, encountering the Lord and being totally transformed by joy. What can account for that? It's like there was an open heaven over them. And, you know, there are other supernatural things Begbie records in his book that will give you goosebumps to read it. Um, check out th page 379. Get it on e-books. What can account for that? I think one of the keys has to be prayer. It was their hunger, their hunger to see God come and do what only he could do in the face of such darkness. Early on, they used to have nights of prayer, whole nights of prayer, where they would just cry out to God for his blessing. Uh, they knew that in their preaching of the gospel, they wouldn't convince people through well-reasoned arguments. People just wouldn't listen. What they needed was for people to have an experience of the Almighty. That's why William Booth uh, said this once. He said, quote, Arguments never open the eyes of the blind. Do not argue, but pray. And so they prayed. They prayed. They cried out to God to fill them with the power of His Spirit. And God who is on a mission to rescue and save the lost, was pleased to answer their prayers. Which is why, incidentally, in the new year, we're starting the new year with a month of prayer where we'll be gathering every Wednesday night to worship and to meet with God. It was following one of those all-night prayer meetings. It was August 1878, where it was reported that they were so filled with the power of God, they literally danced for joy it was after that meeting that William Booth wrote this. He says, the mission has organized a salvation army. In fact, originally he wrote volunteer army. He crossed out the word volunteer and wrote salvation army to carry the blood of Christ and the fire of the Holy Ghost to every corner of the world. It's an army prepared for war that shall bring true peace into the hearts and homes of the vilest and roughest of the people, and shake the kingdom of the devil everywhere. That was the birth of the Salvation Army. Their motto, blood and fire, the gates of hell could not prevail against them. Even though the demonic forces put up a good fight. 
uh, as the Salvationists took to the streets with singing and with musical instruments um, and uh, putting their own words to the popular songs of the day, they would gather a crowd. But they also encountered terrible opposition. They'd be pelted with rotten eggs, dead cats and rats. There'd be people beating drums and cans to try and drown them out. The publicans even recruited thugs to stop the meetings because they were losing so much business to the Salvation Army. That's how many alcoholics were finding freedom in Christ. So an opposition army was formed, was recruited. It was called the Skeleton Army. Got a picture of them here. And they would often march on the Salvationists. In fact, there were some real deadly clashes where on one occasion... Uh, it resulted in the deaths of three Salvation Army members. Uh, in fact, in 1889, it was recorded that 669 Salvation Army members were assaulted, including 251 women. They were courageous. They were prepared to lay down their lives to reach the people around them with the gospel. But in the end, the tide of public opinion turned in their favor. And it was mainly because of their good works. Booth recognized early on that to preach the full gospel meant meeting people's physical as well as spiritual needs. As he once said, he said, you can't warm the hearts of people with God's love if you have an empty stomach and cold feet. So they started an initiative. It was the first of its kind called Food for the Million with soup kitchens and uh, cheap meals for the masses. But they also started hostels for the homeless as well as for unwed mothers and released prisoners. They had rescue homes for prostitutes. They advocated for social reform, tackling issues such as child labor and child prostitution. And of course today, the Salvation Army is known primarily for their good works. Though I do wonder uh, what William Booth would make of his organization today. Uh, throughout his life, William Booth saw that all of their social reform, all their social action was a means of actually helping people to find salvation in Christ. Because he knew only Christ could truly heal humanity's distress. That's why their slogan early on uh, was soup, soap, and salvation. Uh, listen to him in his book, Darkest England. He says, um, in providing for the relief of temporal misery, I reckon I'm only making it easy where it was now difficult and possible where it is now all but impossible for men and women to find their way to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was through their prayer and through their preaching, through the power of the Spirit and through their social action that the Salvation Army saw a quarter of a million people come to know Christ within four years. Between 1881 and 1885, they saw a quarter of a million people put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is astonishing. Their message of blood and fire began to spread, not just across the UK, but across the world, starting in 1880 with workers going to New York City and working with the down and outs there. But the movement actually spread rapidly. They set up mission stations in Canada, Australia, France, Switzerland, India, South Africa, Iceland, 
Uh, when they reached Japan, their work resulted in thousands of prostitutes renouncing their profession in Tokyo. In the United States, they had so much success through their slum work and the help that they gave to strikers' uh, families that when William Booth came to New York in 1895, he was given a hero's welcome. He packed out Carnegie Hall, where he shared his heart and his vision. He spoke in 86 cities and was asked to open the U.S. Senate in prayer. The New York Times said this about him. said, no man of his time did more for the benefit of the people than William Booth. But the amazing thing about all this is that Booth and most of his early workers were just ordinary, uneducated, working-class people. But they knew Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They were filled with the spirit of Jesus. I love the story of a young Salvation Army girl where on one occasion a very conceited, well-to-do gentleman went up to her and said, what does an ignorant girl like you know about religion? He said, I know more than you do. I can say the Lord's Prayer in Latin. She says, really? Well, I can say more than that. I can say the Lord has saved my soul in English. <laughs> that was the spirit that they had. At the end of his life in May 1912 at the Royal Abbot Hall in London, General William Booth addressed 10,000 of his recruits. This is what he said. He said, is this salvation war coming to an end? He says, this war is just beginning. My part is coming to an end, but while I still have breath, I commit myself to strive for the Lord and those who need him. While women weep as they do, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do, I'll fight. While men go to prison, I'll fight. While there remains one dark soul within the reach of the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. Fellow salvationists, the war is not over. Three months later, William Booth was promoted to glory. His body lay in state for three days while 150,000 people filed past his casket. 40,000 people attended his funeral at Olympia, including Queen Mary, who arrived unannounced, had to sit at the back of the hall next to a prostitute. It was reported she heard the prostitute say, he cared for the likes of us. May that be said of every one of us. But like I said earlier, I don't want to give a lesson. I just wanted the spirit of the story or the spirit behind the story to work it into our hearts. However, I do feel we need to respond. I don't know about you, but when I hear stories like this, it just increases my hunger for God, for Him to come and do what only He can do. Um, you know, all around us, maybe even our own church here, there are people living with hopelessness. And when I hear some of the stories of just messed up lives, um, you know, in, in some of the needier, particularly the needier parts of our community where, where children have to live in such 
it can just feel overwhelming at times. It, can, you know, it, it seems like a black hole that no one can fix. And yet, and yet, if we learn anything from history, we see that God can come and change that whole atmosphere. As we heard, what's a pugnant atheism to him? Right? We may face darkness, but that's what Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's what Advent means. God coming amongst us, his light breaking into the darkness. That's not just a nice story from 2,000 years ago. That's what God wants to do here and now, today. In Revelation 3, Jesus spoke to a church in Laodicea, the church of Laodicea, that outwardly they seemed pretty respectable. They were doing good. They were, in a sense, satisfied. Didn't feel like they needed anything. But Jesus said they were lukewarm. And he, he wanted to come and change that. But it clearly required a response. This is what he says in Revelation 3.20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That Steve Bowden shared something along those lines just a few weeks ago. It's about having intimacy with him. A greater intimacy than we have known before. He wants to come in. I mean, it is his house after all, isn't it? But he, he comes where he's invited. He comes where there's a hunger to eat with him. It's not just the church at Laodicea whose door is knocking on. Because it then says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So do we long to know Jesus more? Do we hunger to see him move in greater power? Are we willing to say, yes, Lord, we open that door. We open that, that, that door to our hearts, to our lives, to our church, and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Have your way with us, Lord. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes to push back the darkness, we need you, Lord. Our families need you. Our workplaces need you. Our cities need you. Come, Lord Jesus. If that's your heart today, then you stand with me right now and we'll just ask him together. Come, let's just pray, shall we? Let's just ask him right now together. Lord Jesus, we hear you knocking on that door. And Lord, we know there's so much more that you're wanting to do amongst us. So much more, Lord, greater things than we've seen, Lord, that you want to do here on the seacoast. Lord, there is a harvest that you're wanting to gather in. And Lord, you stand at the door ready, Lord, to pour out your spirit, Lord. Lord, I believe that. Lord, you're knocking on our door. And I want to thank you, Lord, for those in generations past who have opened that door, Lord, men like John Wesley, William Booth, many, many others, Lord. But, Lord, we want you to come in here, Lord, in our own day, in our own church and in our own lives, Lord Jesus. And so we say, come, Lord. Lord, we come 
Lord, as your body here, and we invite you to come in. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we don't know what that might look like here, but it really doesn't matter as long as it's you. As long as it's you, Lord, we say, come. May, Lord, as we look ahead to 2020, may it truly be that year of the Lord's favor. Oh, God, let your spirit, Lord, blow, Lord, upon our church, our lives, this community. Lord, come, Lord Jesus. We need you, Lord. We need you, Lord. This world needs you, Lord. Come, Lord. We open that door by inviting you now. Come in and eat with us, we pray. Thank you, Lord.